0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we look at the significance of the 2020 election with its historic large turnout and Biden winning both in the popular vote and the Electoral College. But without the kind of landslide many expected and higher turnout seemed to have have inflated totals for both parties. Princeton historian and Jacobin contributing editor Matt Karp joins us to look at the Democratic Party's election strategy and results, as well as what the future pretends for the left of the party. They may have won back the blue wall, taking Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada from the Republicans, but Trump also secured a record vote, and the Democrats did badly in down ticket races. Then historian, activist, and prolific author Mike Davis joins us, bringing his analysis of the results, looking in particular at South Texas, but also the excerpts. In South Texas, a blue wave along the Rio Grande from El Paso to Brownsville was taken for granted, but failed to materialize. And we get Mike's take on why the Democrat strategy that allowed a bifurcation of Trump's handling of the pandemic and the economy was such a disaster. And we'll ask what it means going forward. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I am Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Matt Carp back with us. We're going to be talking about the significance of the recently, I was going to say, concluded or almost concluded election of 2020. And I know so many of the listeners out there are feeling some election fatigue, but here we go. We're going to do some more. Matt is a Jacobin contributing editor. He's also an associate. Professor of History at Princeton, and an historian of the Civil War era. His book that was published in 2016 by Harvard Press is The Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. And he's now working on another book that is about the rise of the anti-slavery politics or the Republican Party before the Civil War, and we'll look forward to that one. But today we're going to speak to Matt about his insights on the 2020 election results in geographic and demographic terms and what it means for both the Democrats and for the left going forward. We've talked to Matt, I guess, after midterms and after the last election, and it's always been very fruitful. So this time, this election was, I think, a referendum on Trump, on his handling of the economy, his handling of the pandemic, his immigration policy. And Biden, on the other hand, ran on being the anti-Trump on compassion, competence and decency with little on actual programs. The short story seems to be that the Democrats ran up margins in the suburbs, mostly among upper middle class college educated voters, while doing no better and sometimes much worse than holding the line with almost every other group. This was not simply the kind of line bottom-up transformation of voting bases, but rather the intended fruit of a very conscious Democratic Party strategy with serious and troubling implications for the future of any kind of class politics. And that's what we're going to ask Matt to explain. So, Matt Karp, welcome back to Jacobin Radio. And then let me just say... In your previous analysis of the last couple of American election cycles, one of your fundamental points is that the strategy of the Democratic Party, its leadership and a majority of its elected official now puts the highest priority on winning the better off suburbs. They seem to have done very well with this approach in the 2018 midterms. Could you begin by saying how better off suburbs are defined and what is the basic program that the Democratic leadership believes is necessary to appeal to them and maybe give a few examples of the places we're talking about and what makes that strategy so attractive to those who are running the party.
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, we probably don't need to go back and do, you know, too deep into American history here. But in some ways, the kind of, you know, paradigmatic, well-educated, upper middle class suburb whose sort of professional class politics moved into the Democratic Party as early as the 1980s was the kind of suburban Boston region, the sort of early tech and biotech boom in Boston in the 1980s that uh, Lily Geismore, I think, wrote about in, in her book about the kind of first wave of, yeah, I don't know, neoliberal third-way Democrats, yeah. and they kind of, who actually were seeking to capture a number of constituencies, but that sort of Mike Dukakis-style politics that took over places like from Lexington Newton and the kind of very well educated Boston suburbs with a kind of politics of technocratic competence and private public partnership and with that displacing an emphasis on traditional democratic party emphasis on union labor and working class politics but i mean yes that so that was like maybe one of the early warning shots of how the next you know half century would go since then Uh, In one form or another, this kind of some people are now calling it education polarization, you know, Mm. that that the two major parties are increasingly polarized simply by who has a college degree or not. Um, I think that there's evidence for that. But I think it's even more stark when you add sort of geography and other dimensions of class and social identity to the mix. Because if you look at Bay Area suburbs, the Washington, D.C. area suburbs, the example that I've been writing about over the last 10 years has been Fairfield County outside of Washington, D.C., it used to be the richest county in America, I think has now been surpassed by Loudoun County, which is just its neighbor and has even more kind of federal contractors and defense contractors and other kinds of public-private largesse flowing into it. I think the average household income in Loudoun County is the median household income is something like over one hundred and thirty, dollars maybe $140,000 a year. And these are well-educated and, and affluent places. And of course, this phenomenon has spread most recently in this sort of intensification of this kind of polarization that I do think has been both a product of broader social and economic trends, because you see it all across the Atlantic world, and a sort of a a development of of late, late capitalism, if you will. Thomas Piketty, among others, has written about this. But also, I think, a conscious fruit of a real Democratic Party strategy and that different almost generations of Democrats have pursued these voters and sort of emanate from these voters. You know, I think in one of my Jacobin pieces, I talked about Chuck Schumer as the kind of paradigmatic figure of this kind of emerging in New York politics as a kind of early professional class elite figure. And then famously in 2016, laid it all on the line about the democratic strategy that year, which is for every blue collar vote we lose in deindustrializing Ohio or Pennsylvania, we'll pick up two votes in the suburbs of Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. And that really has been that was just the sort of naked electoral math version. But I think it's also been an ideological transformation. And I think it exists both as conscious strategy and as something that is almost sort of in the blood entered the bloodstream of the of the Democratic Party and the sort of broader age of Clinton and Obama. So, I mean, if we could talk about the policies that are associated with this group, I think they've evolved over the years. I think initially it was much more of a kind of conscious turn to the economic center in the DLC, you know, Dukakis, Clinton era. I think in some ways that has shifted to become under the Obama era to become less a kind of hard and conscious turn to the right or to the center. In fact, they kind of have downplayed that. And if any, in some cases, give their politics a kind of progressive rhetorical sheen. But it, what, what the central similarity is a kind of demotion of labor and working class politics and kind of demotion of this broad social democratic redistributive energy in the party. In favor of other kinds of means testing or, you know, micro targeting, which may have moved from, you know, the micro targeting of Bill Clinton is not the micro targeting of Joe Biden. You know, they're different communities that they're targeting in some ways. But what all these approaches share is a kind of abandonment of certainly a uh, Franklin Roosevelt, or even frankly, and he's no hero of mine, even frankly a kind of Hubert Humphrey broad liberal labor coalition that sort of understood the party's base to be centered around blue collar workers and voters. And yes, this is, again, not just the sort of product of pure malfeasance on the part of this cabal of leaders. This is also part about how the economy has changed. But there's no question that sometimes I think other analysts sort of describe this phenomenon just neutrally as something that, you know, the Democrats had sort of no control over and they just had to go where the voters are instead of it being something that different generations of elites have actively welcomed and accelerated. And this year, the acceleration of it under Trump has been really profound, which we can talk
2: about.
0: Yeah, I do want to get there. And I just wanted to, before we move on to this next thing, is just to kind of get a a sense of how well they've done with this strategy, the Democratic Party, and then to the extent that they've pursued it, as you've just mentioned, but we could say again, that they've alienated key other elements of the traditional base, like blue-collar workers, Latinos, Blacks, etc., women. So how did they, do you know yet, or have you looked at the results to see how well they've done in that strategy, and then with these other constituencies that I've just mentioned, particularly Black and Latinos?
1: Well, yeah, the, the votes are still coming in, and we're still, we still don't have the kind of detailed math that we will get in the weeks and months to come. But yeah, it's been an acceleration of those same two trends, which is, both winning voters on persuasion, that is converting moderate Republicans and independent voters, and enthusiasm, that is winning over non-voters in these, largely if you look at the the sort of in geographic terms, in these well-educated upper middle class communities. And that's been happening since, really since the Obama administration took over. In 2008, Actually, Obama won a huge amount of working class voters. He did better with the sort of broader kind of working class Democratic coalition than than Democrats had been doing in a while. But then as soon as he was in office and it became not Obama the candidate, but Obama the president and Timothy Geithner, his sort of chief of economic policy, then you did see a kind of diffusion of that base a little bit in 2012, and then by 2016, we saw this transformation. So anyway, so they've been winning over these voters. They've been winning over these moderate Republicans. They've been losing, especially in 2016, 2018, and 2020. And and in return, they've been losing, basically, because American politics is so racialized, it's clear that they're losing, you know, white non-college educated voters, broadly white working class voters. And turnout, both enthusiasm and participation has been broadly flat. I would say, among non-white working class voters. So that was certainly the story in 2016. And we read a lot about, you know, these Obama-Trump voters in, say, Macomb County, Michigan, you know, laid off auto workers, presumably all white, although they weren't, but who switched from Obama to Trump. But then we also heard a lot in 2016 about the missing votes in Milwaukee and Detroit and Philadelphia among African-Americans, among black working class voters who, you know, didn't go Republican, obviously, because the Republican Party has Since Barry Goldwater has treated Black voters with contempt and kind of almost imagined them outside of the political community, but voted with their feet by not voting, in effect. And we saw this massive sink in turnout. So, in other words, it's been the same wager, and it didn't work at all in 2016 because they didn't get enough of the suburbs to compensate for the sort of missing votes among white working class votes they lost and the Black and Latino working class votes they didn't win. And then 2018, they did a little bit better in a lower turnout election because the suburban votes kind of counted more. And then in 2020, they did somewhere in the middle, somewhere in between. So it was the same pattern. I think, you know, you will say for Biden that it seems like he didn't actively do that much worse than Hillary Clinton among black voters in these key cities. And he got about as many votes in Detroit as Hillary Clinton. And given population decline, that means he probably did a little bit better. He got about as many votes in Milwaukee he got about as many votes in Philadelphia. But again, if you look at the precinct level, it really looks like in you know lower income and working class and actually downright poor African-American neighborhoods in those cities, turnout was lower than 2016 even. So even though Biden still won 85, 90 percent of, of African-American votes, according to exit polls, this is not a community that's really divided on partisan lines, turnout among Black voters broadly was probably up. The turnout among working class Black voters was probably down in a lot of these key areas. And certainly it was down in places like St. Louis, where I've looked at some of the war data. And in some of the some of the maps I've seen of Philadelphia suggest that it really was down, which is pretty shocking given how high turnout was broadly pretty much everywhere else. And I think does represent, you know, I think it shouldn't be forgotten that the Democrats are not for all of the talk about kind of you know in some ways fetishization of african-american voters is like the bedrock of the democratic party coalition which it is in some ways because it black voters are the most loyal democratic voters there are if you just divide it up by race but if you look at race and class and location these voters are not really being prioritized and they're not whatever the democrats are selling they're not really buying it any more than they were four years ago on the other hand The counter story is that Biden did drive up the numbers even more than Hillary did in those wealthy suburbs. And so in the Milwaukee collar counties, which are not, you know, they're not like Boston or the Bay Area in terms of their wealth, but they are disproportionately very well educated and comfortable of white picket fence areas by turnout was up 30, 35%. Same thing in the Detroit suburbs, in the wealthy towns around Detroit, same thing in the Philadelphia suburbs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the similar story is there's a similar story in Atlanta. I think we need more data on this. My first peek at Atlanta suggests that actually black turnout, you know, even working class black turnout did go up a little bit there in contrast to the Midwest. But even there, it was dwarfed by turnout from, if you look at the precinct level, we're talking about an increase of maybe 5-10% versus an increase of something like 35-40% in places like Sandy Springs and wealthier, almost overwhelmingly white communities. So this is something that we have to wrap our minds around, that, you know, Black voters definitely put Biden in office, no question about that. But the most enthusiastic parts of the coalition, once again, were largely white, well-educated voters, it seems like. And we need more analysis, we need more. There's beyond me just poking around at these precincts, some of the sort of actual experts are coming out with stuff that follow this path that suggests that, you know, if you look at all the counties in America, we'll need to dive deeper. But that seems to be the story.
0: That's great. So now it seems like in pursuing this strategy, the Democratic leadership is consciously aiming, as it has been for a very long time, to limit the influence of the parties left. And so that, you know, Bernie Sanders, the squad, as we like to call them, who are inside the party so as to prevent the party from adopting and putting forward class economic priorities that are opposed by the donors, like Medicare for All, free public higher education, more climate action, all of the above. And so it seems like Leading members of the party have responded in a critical way to the Democratic Party's performance in the election, including AOC, Bernie and Nina Turner. And so what did they say? What are they saying about the election of the party and what should it be henceforth? And what do you think following on from that? And I know I'm cutting and we'll go back to more about the bigger picture of the election. But what do you think is the future of the left within the Democratic Party? What are they likely to do now?
1: Well, it's complicated because in some ways, as some have observed, the kind of most conservative wing of the Democratic Party, not even the leadership, which is conservative in its own way, but the most conservative wing of the Democratic Party, if they survived this election, they got exactly what they wanted. You know, the kind of former never Trump Republicans who made their journey into the Democratic Party. They have the divided government. They have bipartisan Joe. They have an apparent uh, rebuke of the left. You know, this is the thing when you have the money to and you have the sort of institutional leadership to shape the election along the terms that you want, which in this case were largely, as I think I think Tom Frank had a really good phrase, basically high-minded white-collar rectitude. That was the sort of basis on which Joe the Biden campaign was waged. It was about the soul of America. So in some level, bedrock decency, which fair enough, uh, going against Donald Trump. But then that was connected to competence, expert rule, belief in science. And, and meritocracy, and, and, yeah. Yeah. And in some sense, yes, the meritocracy and the kind of deference to professional experts. So I think that far more than whatever is on Biden's website about jobs and about even infrastructure stuff, which he does support and I think he will support, um, were really the kind of, in my view, the driving essence of the campaign and what made it, even though Biden himself has a sort of a, Better track record as sort of being a, if you will, a fake working class populist than Hillary Clinton did is an individual. His campaign, the Biden Harris 2020 campaign, was actually remarkably similar to the Clinton Kane campaign of 2016 in, in its focus on that kind of rectitude and responsibility. And so I think in that sense, the conservatives and the institutionalists in the party help control the terms on which the campaign against Trump is fought. And then they get the electoral result in effect that they want, where The voters that agree with them turn out and respond to that message. Other voters don't. And then they're able to turn around and say, look, this message works. Your message doesn't. And so they get to sort of make basically disingenuous electoral tactical arguments to justify their ideological preferences, you know, against Medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera. Now, where does that lead to the left? It's really hard. It's temperamentally, I want to find the good news right around the corner but i i mean look there are the enhanced squad in congress with cory Bu- bush. bush and um jamal bowman who i think is is basically a member maybe mondair jones too if you want to throw him in there clearly they they also are good at driving media narratives to some extent so that is that's a weapon that, that the left has it, it's kind of in some ways given the actual tiny number of kind of basically bernie crats there are in congress they do get disproportionate attention so I'm hoping that they are able to maintain a sort of effective opposition to this potential centrist consensus in Washington and, and get a little bit more, you know, that these people know that their, their, their politics better than me. But my instinct is, and I do feel like everyone in the Bernie crowd world probably is due for a dose of humility to some extent. <laughs> yeah. But but if, if I'm on the radio and you're asking me what the left should do, I mean, I think it should tie itself to the mast of these Very broadly popular universal programs like Medicare for all. And I think it would be a shame if the grounds of opposition to Biden worlds or Biden McConnellism were themselves chosen, if the left chose grounds that were primarily about an opposition to one form of kind of signaling and rhetoric with another form of signaling and rhetoric. And to say, okay, we're not moderates, we're progressives. We believe, you know, you like this slogan, we like that slogan. My hope is that there will be a kind of emphasis to sort of work towards the left wing majority that people like Bernie and I think people like AOC agree exists in favor of these broad, very popular, very necessary, very just, very radical programs that also most Americans support. Like, again, again, I'll start with Medicare and I won't end, but I'll start with Medicare for all. And I think that and I, and I guess going along with that, I mean, it's so easy to, t- to connect this to the pandemic relief situation right. where you're going to where you have hundreds of thousands of people dying in a country where tens of millions lack health insurance. It's an obscenity. And I think it would be a shame not to make that the center ground of the fight going forward um, as part of pandemic relief. I mean, Bernie's bill to basically give everyone who had COVID Medicare, that would be a great place to start. Let's see you know, Pelosi shoot that down. I mean, she will. But that seems like a. You know, I just hope that there are on ramps that can sustain and maybe even build that coalition rather than sort of just pick fights for the sake of of picking fights anyway.
0: So let me just because, you know, we're doing a lot in a short amount of time. And I wanted to ask you, Matt, you know, you've been focusing on the Democratic Party. I've asked you to do that and the aspirations of the leadership of the party mainstream, the response from the left and their base. And if we step back and look at the bigger picture, maybe you could give us your assessment of the election, which seems to be on the surface, I think contradictory. And that's, on the one hand, Biden seemed to do very well in his own terms. He got a bigger vote than anyone in history. We had huge voter turnout. That was in absolute numbers and in the percentage of the electorate. He won back the so-called Blue Wall, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, you mentioned that. He seems to have consolidated Latino forces in winning Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, and New Mexico. And in addition, we can't forget Georgia, which now was won for the first time. I think since maybe you can correct me, nineteen sixty. In any case, ninety-two. Um, Bill
1: Clinton.
0: Oh, ninety-two. <laughs> there you yeah, go. Clinton okay. did
1: sneak in, sneak in Georgia the first time around,
0: right? Yeah. But I just wanted to go from there. That Trump also got a record turnout, and millions more voted for him in twenty twenty than in twenty sixteen. And moreover, the Republicans won what looks like a devastating victory down ballot, maintaining. Perhaps we still have a runoff in Georgia in January, but it looks like they're going to hold on to the majority in the Senate. They've won back something like a half dozen seats in the House, successfully held on to state legislatures. So, how do you see that part of the picture?
1: Well, I think the up ticket, down ticket split, it seems pretty clear to me. I mean, I'm sure there's more to it, but it seems pretty clear and easy to explain that by again, in terms of the broader anti-Trump strategy that the Democratic Party has developed since 2017, you know, personalizing Trump, identifying Trump as a kind of aberration and a departure from the Republican Party more broadly. And, you know, you could say it paid off if if your view is that all those those ticket-splitting votes, which weren't that large but were enough to produce this contradictory result, if your view is that if they hadn't pursued the strategy, all those people would have voted straight Republican, then it worked out really well. If your view is that those voters could have been persuaded to vote against the broader Republican Party if the broader Republican Party, rather than Trump, had been identified with the problems in America today, then it was an epic blunder because they produced a government that can win but can't govern, can't pursue any of its even its own sort of mildly redistributive programs on its agenda without the Senate or and would really struggle to do that. And again, although the Senate, you know, we can't totally count the Senate out. I would say more broadly, what, what, what do I think about the situation of two-party conflict in the country? I mean, one group that we didn't talk about um, that we should get to is in more detail, you mentioned Latino voters yes, and how, again, I want to see more numbers on this because it may be geographically really polarized. It looks For now that Trump did better overall with Latino voters than any Republican in in decades. But, and especially it looks like in Florida and in Texas, in South Texas, it seems really clear, but maybe a regionally specific story. We don't, I'd like to still get more information out of Arizona and out of Nevada and frankly, out of California too. It'd be interesting to see if there was any bleed toward Trump within among the Latino voters in California, but I, I sort of doubt it. So it's not clear. You know, part of me would love to dunk on the Democrats and say, ring the alarm. You know, the Democratic Party has done nothing for black and brown working class voters and they're about to vote Republican. I'm not sure that that's really, we're really quite ready to say that. On the other hand, that's not unimaginable. You know, and even four years ago, that would have seemed almost absurd to say. And I think who knows down the line if education polarization continues, as they say, and if the Democrats continue to lean into it, it may be that we see a real education polarization among especially probably not black voters again given america's history and the and the orientation of the republican party but definitely among latino and and perhaps asian voters as well that we'll see some of those same patterns begin to emerge more strongly i'm not sure that they've emerged just yet i, I you know the exit polls are telling a contradictory story, because I did see that it really looks like, like lower income Latino voters did largely vote blue. And mm-hmm. it was largely upper income Latino voters who swung to Trump. You know, that doesn't totally explain South Texas to me, but it may partly explain it. Turnout more broadly in those places in South Texas is so low that even if you mobilize just a kind of a few thousand voters, it's enough to flip some of those counties. I think, More broadly, the story there is less about a huge swing to Trump or to the Republicans and more about a continued Democratic failure to mobilize enough of those working class black and brown voters, either with its program or with its delivery of goods in government. And that those communities are still voting at much lower numbers than, you know, 70, 75, 80 percent turnout that you're starting to see in educated areas. And the risk is going forward just in pure partisan terms that the Democrats are starting to kind of hit the limit of how many votes they can squeeze out of these suburbs. They got more in 2016 than they'd ever done before, more in 2018, even more in 2020. But we're talking in a place like, you know, Michigan's wealthy communities in the outside of Michigan. You're looking at of 80 the, percent of the voters are already coming out and this town is voting 75 percent Democrat. It's not really clear how much more they're going to be able to scrape out there. Whereas, as you said, Trump's turnout In working class rural areas and exurban areas, there are still more voters there. Those communities still vote at a lower number than the educated suburbs. So there's still in theory, there's still more voters out there for them to get. Whether a post-Trump party can actually get them, I'm also skeptical. I think Trumpism without Trump is not as effective as Trumpism with Trump. It's an entertainment thing as much as anything else. So they I don't see Tom Cotton coming along and you know doing YMCA at dance parties in Wisconsin and turning out 70% of the vote. So I don't know going forward, but the truth is demographically, they arguably have more room to grow, especially if they can make some inroads into Latino and Asian voters. They have more room to grow, arguably, than Democrats on their current trajectory.
0: Oh, that's good. Well, I think one of the big surprises, though, was, and it wasn't just the Democrats in the party leadership, but more or less everybody thought that the Republicans And Trump were undermining themselves with pandemic policy and with the refusal to extend the economic aid package adopted under the CARES Act, which left many in the population in really desperate straits. I don't need to go through all of that. And then the refusal of Trump to do really anything to contain the out-of-control pandemic, which, as we are speaking, is surging in almost unbelievable uh numbers and then you know him saying it is what it is and basically telling people or let's say reducing this concept of liberty to the right not to wear a mask which is absolutely unbelievable but then also getting away with putting Amy Coney Barrett in the Supreme Court during the actual election, exposing the hypocrisy of all those Republicans who said they wouldn't do that after, you know, the Merrick Garland debacle. So it seemed like all of these issues would really help the Democratic Party. And it didn't, you know, and we don't have a ton of time at all, but I wanted to see if you could go into that and also talk about what you just began to, which is the striking amount of support that Trump seems to get from small-town America. And you said that in the exurbs and in the smaller towns. I guess, really, how do you see it? And do you think the Democrats could ever win them over?
1: I agree with your characterization of this high expectations, basically, for the Democrats because of COVID and Trump's really disastrous and deadly bungling and sort of irresponsibility in handling that, which is a real thing. And you know, was deservedly and I think in some ways effectively called out by the Democrats. But I'm not actually sure that that won votes. Frankly, I mean, there were a lot of those polls in Wisconsin were like that had Biden up ten, which were insanely wrong. Where you know people were saying it's because COVID is murdering Wisconsin right now, and they they're blaming Trump. That didn't appear to be the case. I worry, in fact, almost alternatively, and I hope try to say this in a subtle way without sounding like an some sort of anti-science or anti-masker myself. But I worry that actually what COVID did, the function, the historic function that it had was not to hurt Republican prospects, but to actually invite the Biden campaign to lean even more heavily into a basically a politics of rectitude and responsibility and expertise rather than the sort of Scranton Joe versus Park Avenue Donald narrative that they'd been kind of workshopping and probably, you know, thinking to run on, which again would be phony in all sorts of ways, but would at least I think potentially have been more effective at winning back some of those voters that, that Obama had won in 2008. But I think they basically junked that for a, you know, I believe in science and I'm personally responsible and you're not and all the red states are, are dying of COVID, ha ha ha. Now, Biden didn't say that, but I think that energy was kind of palpable within the democratic media brand, again, populated largely by these high-minded white collar folk who do believe in their own rectitude. And I think that as long as that kind of, I'll I'll call it a toxin, is flowing through Democratic veins institutionally, flowing through Democratic branded media, flowing through the prestige world more broadly, institutionally, and if that's kind of part of the public face of the party, I don't think that they are going to ever win back these voters. Now, I'm not saying that they can just switch their cultural signaling and overturn 50 years of history, because as we said, this is... Partly a broader political economic shift. At the same time, I do think there are different strategies that would yield better results. I mean, if Biden came in and said right off the bat, as Obama did not, said, okay, what I'm doing is, you know, Medicare for COVID victims and the PRO Act, you know, which is the new labor act that it's House Democrats right, have right. gotten behind in a way that Obama didn't say with the Employee Free Choice Act. Now, is it going to pass even a 50 50 Senate? I don't know. But if Democrats make that their priority and actually stitch it to their banner, we're the party of the organized working class, then, you know, maybe they would see more votes from the organized working class instead of saying that they're the party of responsibility and rectitude. So I I don't know. I I think that it's still a path that it might not work also, but it, it certainly hasn't been tried in the Obama, Pelosi, Schumer, Biden era.
0: Right. Well, Matt Carp, I want to thank you so much for being succinct and getting so much in. And of course, I have a lot more I wanted to ask. But next time, it's always a pleasure having you, Matt Carp. And for those of you who want to read Matt, go to Jacobin. He's written a, a ton of articles. He's a contributing editor of Jacobin, but he also teaches history at Princeton and writes about the Civil War. And has got a new book coming out sometime in the future on the rise of the Republican Party before the Civil War. And I can't think of what else, but Matt, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman and I'm very pleased to have Mike Davis back with us to continue our understanding and analysis and perspectives on this, I guess, almost completed 2020 election. It's not really completed quite yet, but it seems to be. And Mike is, of course, a historian, activist, prolific author, and just in the last couple of years, he's published the monumental study of Los Angeles in the 60s, co-authored with John Weiner, called Set the Night on Fire. And he's written about COVID and pandemics in The Monster Enters, COVID-19, Avian Flu and the Plagues of Capitalism, also Old Gods, New Enigmas, Marx Lost Theory, which is a disparate Collection of four essays on working class history, nationalism, and the environment. And of course, before that, many, many, many more, which I'll have to tell you to go to Google to find out. Mike Davis, welcome back to Jacobin Radio. My pleasure. And I just, I was looking back at what you wrote just after the 2016 election. And you said Trump's victory, of course, may turn out to be the ghost dance of a dying white culture, quickly followed by a return to Obamian globalist normalcy or conversely, we may be heading into the twilight zone of homegrown fascism. The parameters of the next four years are largely unknown. Much depends on whether the Republicans succeed in incorporating the old industrial states of the upper Midwest into their mid-continental Reich of solidly red southern and plain states. And in this case, their structural electoral advantages might override the popular vote for another decade. And so I want to go from there, and of course I want to say one factor that you could never have imagined was, you know, this intervening coronavirus and worldwide pandemic. But before going to that, I want to look ahead from that analysis of 2016, and uh, you seem to be saying that you're looking forward to 2020 to one of two possibilities: either. A return to obamium, globalist neoliberal normalcy, as you said, or a deepening of the Trump and the Republican reactionary drive to then so-called authoritarian populism and leaving aside any problem that we may have with those terms. So in this election, in the real sense, Biden and Trump each seem to be aiming respectively, for one of the two options that you've laid out. So do you think that this election confirmed that these were the two political options? And do you think the electorate came down on one side or the other? Or is there yet another alternative?
2: Well, the Clinton-Obama restoration has happened, but it's confined to the Oval Office. In every other important part of the election, I think we're all astonished by the strength that the Republicans demonstrated. Biden brought out about 10 million, maybe 11 million new voters. Trump succeeded in bringing out eight and a half million new voters. And the results of this, whereas the uh, Democratic National Congressional Campaign Committee had been boasting that they would win 10 to 20 new seats, they lost 10. So the House majority may be down now at to only about seven or eight votes, a very fragile majority. The Democrats spent a billion dollars on Senate races, have gained one seat, and now control of the Senate depends on two runoffs in Georgia that Republicans are heavily favored to win. But maybe the most single important result is what occurred in state elections, because people recall in 2010 in the first midterm after Obama's election and after he crushed an awful lot of hopes by bailing the banks out without penalty, the Republicans seized about 650 legislative seats and gained control over all, I think it was around 25 legislatures They had total control. That enabled them to reapportioned seats because 2010 was the census year on the basis of gerrymanders that we've seen the results of in places like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Texas. So it's all important in this election to achieve strategic victories in these state elections. In fact, the Democrats achieved none. And one example, because it's probably the most important is the case of Texas. Now, you recall that the polls right up to election eve were showing that Biden might even win Texas. The Democrats traditionally have never really invested serious resources in Texas. But at the last moment, Blumenberg and another Democratic billionaire poured an awful lot of money into nine or ten Texas legislative elections, House elections, which... Beto O'Rourke had carried in 2018. That would have given the Democrats a majority in the Texas House and would have prevented the gerrymander. They did not win a single one of those seats. So it's hard to imagine Biden encountering a worse balance of power than what he faces now. The tiny majority in the House, probably the Senate still in the hands of Mitch McConnell, with the Republican supermajorities in a couple dozen states, absolutely unmoved, and with the federal courts, from district courts to the Supreme Court, firmly in the hands of Republicans for another generation.
0: This is really good, and I should let the listeners know that they should look forward to the article that you're writing for New Left Review on this, and it's called a civil war served cold on the 2020 election. It may have a different title by the time it comes out. But you spend, you know, a lot of time in that just going over what you just talked about, how the Democrats neglected South Texas And sort of just swooped in at the very end and took it for granted. And we know everybody was upset that Julian Castro was uh, not given any time at the virtual convention to speak. But you also lay out the ways that not only did the Democrats not do well in the down ballot or the down ticket elections, but the way that the Republicans systematically organized to secure their results. Could you elaborate, I guess, a little bit on that, which seems almost structural and what you think that means for the future?
2: Sure. There are eight counties along the Texas-Mexican border that have considerable populations. A couple million people live along the border. Hillary Clinton won those border counties by 40%. Joe Biden managed to lose two counties with 80% Latino population, and only managed to get 15% margin. The Republicans mounted a particularly aggressive campaign in South Texas. Now, the autopsies of that disaster, and I exclude San Antonio here because it has its own powerful democratic political machine run by the Castro brothers, but this has been attributed to things like the fact that Tejanos are more conservative, Large numbers of them worked for ICE. There was a large Catholic vote against abortion. But none of that really holds up when you look at what happened in March on Super Tuesday in the Democratic primary, because Bernie Sanders, who had 200 young Latinos on his national staff, full timers, roared into South Texas who Lin Castro had dropped out of the race in January. And he swept all those counties with massive enthusiasm, with a whole new stratum of young activists, created a tremendous amount of energy. He swept all of South Texas and got Austin. So I think what you saw in the results is only in its minority, the result of a more aggressive and well-funded campaign by the Republicans. But it's the fact that after Bernie lost, it deflated expectations and removed enthusiasm. And the truth is, the Biden campaign had almost nothing to offer South Texas. Maybe immigration reform was important, but in terms of economic issues, it just failed as it did in so many other places to connect in any powerful way with the material needs of people.
0: I mean, I think that's right. I was saying earlier that Biden basically ran as the anti-Trump, as someone who was competent and compassionate and decent and did not, as you just mentioned, Mike, gave very little in the way of economic programs. And of course, a lot of people have hopes or had hopes. But basically, when you talk about Texas, in your article, you talk even more about it. But this issue of immigration policy of Trump, you know, separating children at the border, we could go to the other areas. But it just seems to be like another case of the Democrats taking their base for granted.
2: Of course, it's worse than that, Susie, because the campaign strategy should have been, obviously should have been, and both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders made this point again and again, should have been about the indissolvable link between having an effective national plan to fight the pandemic and jobs. In other words, should have gone out in April, for instance, in May, when there's a big labor upsurge, rank and file upsurge, protest against workplace safety, and tied that to jobs as well, saying we want to put people back to work but the Trump administration is making the workplaces unsafe. It's doing nothing about that. At every point, they should have made this association between jobs and management of the pandemic. Instead, they did the stupidest thing possible, which is let Trump divide the issues and counterpose them. So are you going to vote around the pandemic? Are you going to vote for jobs? Now, if you look at the election results, you look at the 71 million votes that Trump got, and I have an elaborate explanation for these calculations in the article. About 55 million of that vote, about 40% of the overall vote, corresponds really to the kind of hardcore. These are Republicans who surveyed on the eve of the election, only 11 percent of them thought that climate change was an issue, less than a quarter thought the pandemic was an issue. But that leaves 17 million other votes. This is the kind of soft Trump vote. And I think that it's a broad agreement, at least amongst liberal and progressive analysts of the election, and that analysis has been made in the last uh, week, week and a half, that the economy was the crucial issue because people have, for the entirety of this pandemic, been forced in this position of having to make Sophie's choices about the safety of their families, the health of their families, and their need for income. And Trump created a divide between those two positions. And so you, you in a sense, had two plebiscites going on, one for people who thought the pandemic was... More important, even the cost of jobs and other people who, having faced job loss, the closure of their businesses, and realizing worse could come if there were more closures and without any kind of the income supports. Because remember, in July, the initial payments stopped. And by the end of this year, all the relief to workers and small businesses will stop. This is another point where the Democrats should have gone to the grassroots instead of playing this game behind relatively behind closed doors in Congress. There should have been ads everywhere saying, Michigan is bottling up the money to save your house or jobs. So it's hard to avoid the conclusion that this was really strategically one of the stupidest campaigns ever waged particularly in the light of what happened in 2016 and Clinton's loss a significant number of blue-collar Democrats.
0: Okay, so Mike, I think that's right, you know, and it's just incredible that the fact that Mitch McConnell could stand his ground and even continues to do so and says there's no possibility of any relief, economic relief, till January at the very least, whereas I know right now that, In certain states, there were eviction moratoriums. They come to an end now. And so between even now, or let's say Thanksgiving and January, we're likely to see perhaps tens of thousands of evictions, you know, at the time that we're going to have a surging pandemic, as you well know. And it's pretty incredible that he could get away with that. But before we get to that, let's just say this one other important fact, and that is that Looking at your 2016 analysis and then looking now, you can say that they're similar, but nonetheless, you also have to say that there was a much larger voter turnout, and the Biden vote was, as we now know, the largest for any candidate in history, or at least for the last more than 100 years, I think, and also the greatest percentage. Of the available electorate in history. So outdoing and I think in the end by the popular vote, he will have won something like five million more than Trump. This is not about going to the Electoral College. But how does that affect your conclusion about the 2020 elections being very similar to 2016? Or does it have any independent significance or looking at it separately, what's the significance of Biden's big increase? And But then also you have to say, of course, the big increase in Trump's vote.
2: Well, the problem with the popular vote, of course, is that the Democratic margin, the 3 million majority that Clinton won in 2016, and now it's 4.5 or 5 million votes that Biden won that really just goes down into a trash bag in hard blue states because it doesn't convert into any additional electoral seats. Biden's victory consists of about 256,000 votes in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, plus Arizona and, and Georgia. It's a very slim victory. Trump won in 2016 because he got 77,000 more votes than Clinton in the three Great Lakes state. But whatever spin is being put on this election as a historic victory for the Democrats, it just doesn't wash. Nobody expected Trump to increase his vote by eight and a half million. Everybody was predicting a landslide. Poll after poll from Pew to Associated Press, was showing a 10-point lead by Biden, that evaporated. And so the question is, what happened here? And then again, I would argue that the single most important factor was the Democrats' inability to provide answers about the economy. Also, Trump, of course, had the advantage that the third quarter reports, job reports, look pretty good. They looked like there was actually a strong recovery. On the other hand, if you looked at the October job gains, about 650,000 new jobs added or recovered, half of those jobs are in food service and retail, which had reopened, but which are now beginning to close again. In other words, the election that occurred next month in December <laughs> and everything starts to fall apart again in face of the, the second COVID surge, we might have had a different result. But for voters who didn't like Trump, and actually an awful lot of those who voted for him don't like him personally, but desperate about the question of jobs and income, they looked at who had the better offer. And Trump was supported by what seemed to be a strong recovery. So many people voted knowing it was a danger to their health and their family's health, but that calculated a greater importance to being able to pay the rent or stave off eviction. Do you
0: see, though, Mike, that you mentioned that it was a really stupid policy for the Democrats to kind of separate and allow the election to go forward as the pandemic on one hand and the economy on the other, and that even for the left who had fought hard for things like infrastructure spending and a Green New Deal and Medicare for All, which was rejected. And, you know, Biden continually told everyone that those were not his issues. He defeated Bernie Sanders and the left so that he could counter the charges that he was a raving socialist. But then on the other hand, When pressed at various meetings, he would speak in a slightly more progressive way and talk about the kind of green new jobs that would come with the Green New Deal. And this went over like a wet blanket, it seems. And I think this is very much the point that, you know, that you're raising.
2: Why not? Why should anybody believe in this? I mean, in 2016, I looked at 15 different Obama voting counties, blue collar counties, smokestack counties, that it went over to Trump. And in each case, I was able to correlate through looking at the local newspapers and TV stations. They had significant job losses. And Clinton couldn't speak to that. She also avoided going to most of these places as well. In the debates, Biden addresses the question of unemployment and the future of work by referring to millions of green energy jobs. Are you kidding? I mean, are people sitting around the table and, you know, in Youngstown or even Tucson, wherever, really going to imagine their futures as installing solar power in Texas or being software engineers for otherwise totally automated trucking companies? For every green job created, you're probably going to lose a five or 10. It doesn't address concrete situation of people at all. He could have addressed it by talking about expanding public employment, by talking about geographically targeted economic aid to the regions in most distress, but he didn't. And so the result in the Rust Belt, this marginal increase that allowed him to win some of these states, still looked very, very much like 2016. He was unable to repair the damage because he could not answer the simple question. Here we are in Erie. What are you going to do to increase job opportunity and give more economic security to the region? To be fair, most of these left parties, middle-of-the-road left parties in Europe, social democratic parties and the British Labour Party, have not answered that question either. That's why so many depressed former industrial uh, Heartlands like the north of England, France, Eastern Germany, Tuscany, you know, once the strongholds of communists who left labor votes are now represented by Trump-like politicians and their parties.
0: But it's so interesting, Mike, because these parties campaigned on the very issues that you're talking about, and yet they don't deliver. In fact, they govern like the neoliberal counterparts. And so you think like bringing it back to the United States and small town America and these areas that I'm going to ask you to go into, you know, one thing you might have thought would happen would that people would just stay home. Seeing no alternative, but they didn't stay home. And it's, and you and I spoke privately about whether or not Pelosi should have made a deal with Trump, at least to extend the CARES package, because that might have changed. At least it certainly would have helped people get through from now till whenever. But that was crucially important that that did not happen.
2: McConnell would never accept that. Right. And he it said so. be An enormous thing. She could simply have said, okay. We'll negotiate around Trump's proposal and accept it, okay? And we'd come back at the end of January and we'll deal with the vital aid to local and state governments that the Republicans object to. But if she'd said that, McConnell already said, no way this is passing the Senate. Right. And the little advantage it would have given Trump. She yeah. would have had powerful leverage over the Senate races and the popular vote. But the Democrats seem to avoid at all costs, being the party of high employment and jobs can be further from the New Deal persona of the Democratic Party.
0: That's exactly the point, you know, that I wanted to get to. And it's the point also in the UK and elsewhere that the Labour Party, the Democratic Party, Are more interested in crushing their left wing challenges than they are. uh, They're more worried about that than they are losing to the far right populists or so called populists. So, you know, and you spend a lot of time in the article that will come out in New Left Review looking at strategic case studies and advancing the view that the Democrats underperform because of their own political failures. That's what we've been talking about. And in Texas again, let's go back over that. It was neglected overconfidence, especially along the border where the Republicans simply outorganize them. I have a lot of questions about that, including the role of the right wing media. But in these deindustrializing areas, it was the refusal. Again, this is going back to the role of the left to implement truly radical interventions that would have been needed to get industry and jobs in these areas, as advocated by Bernie and AOC and the squad. And they picked up a few votes, but we have okay. to be
2: honest. In general, progressives form very well. And yeah. progressive referendums on local ballots perform very well. $15 minimum wage, one in Florida, in five, Yeah. Uh, despite the big vote for Trump. And I think the most devastating and accurate analysis of the election results is precisely that issued by the Justice Democrats and by Alexandria, because they hammer away at this issue of not being able to represent the economic needs of people. And they show that if moderate Democrats, who suffered most of the losses in the House races, lost. It wasn't because of the socialists on the other side. It was because of their own ineffective politics. Everybody who supported Green New Deal won in, in this election. So the election results actually ratify the long-held analysis of the Sanders campaign and of the socialists in Congress I also should note that it appears that Bernie is going to fully endorse the idea of hitting the streets immediately after the inauguration, if not before, to fight for all the things that Biden discarded or refused to be aggressive about. I mean, the biggest single disappointment in this election year was the Sanders camp's concession of single-payer health care for everybody. They never should have done that, particularly when it coincided with a pandemic that showed it was either single payer or nothing for millions of people. That has to be back on the agenda. But the only people who show real competence in fighting Trump and in going into places that are the orphans of the Democratic Party, like South Texas or Appalachia, Indian countries, you know, Puerto Rico, the place where mainstream Democrats in you know, The only people who do that are progressives.
0: I mean, and this is absolutely true that we know that something like 65 percent of the country wants Medicare for all, and that also includes Republicans. You know, and others may have argued that when Biden put forward the public option, that that would be a backdoor way because, you know, the insurance companies say they can't compete against the government. We had this argument when Obama was putting this forward. But I want to go just a little bit more in our last minutes here about Texas, because you talk a lot about, New York Times does others, about why the Latino vote increased for the Republicans. And I think in your article, you emphasize some entrepreneurial opportunities and uh, love for Trump, despite his awful policies on immigration, separating children, but then also religion. And you, I think you put it in your article, I, I may be wrong, about even being in favor of Amy Comey Barrett coming in with her strong anti-abortion stance. But then also you show that, and you just said, that Bernie's policies would have done quite well, but he did lose to Biden in the primary. So the larger question then is, could there be a reindustrialization that would change everything from the Midwest to the southern border, even though it's never really even happened? Or I've been contemplated.
2: There's only one honest answer for that. Yep. The private sector cannot create good or secure jobs for Americans. That's true on a world scale. Capitalism is no longer a job-creating engine. It's a job destroyer. And technological change points in that direction. It's the public sector that has to create the jobs. Our crushing need for more School teachers for more caregivers, for more health care workers, for more people involved in environmental activities like controlling forest fires, and you know that's where the jobs have to come from, but the only people prepared to talk about an expansion of the public sector are the handful of people of genuine socialists in Congress. I mean, the Democratic Party has completely caved in to this demonization of the public sector and of public employees. Nothing was said by the Democrats about restoring hundreds of thousands of public sector jobs that have been cut in the last decade. So in a sense, there are only a handful of people who are willing to speak realistically and honestly about jobs, where jobs come from and how Americans can have economic security. I must add to this, because otherwise this interview will seem strangely silent on the point, that of course, white supremacism played a very large part. And I was surprised by the extent, something like 78% of Republicans said that crime was an extremely important issue. I was surprised by the extent in which Trump seems to have been able to easily sell this idea that Black Lives Matter protests were actually violent riots engineered by communists. I mean, there's the taproot of Cold War anti-communism is still alive out there in large parts of the American interior and in the South.
0: And it's really interesting that you say that, because I know in my own home state, you know, where gun control, they hate the Democrats because of guns. They love their guns. But at the same time, I saw, you know, that that could easily translate into a sort of blanket approval of the police against the vandalism of what they called, you know, mimicking Trump, Antifa, anarchists, terrorists, whatever it is, not so much socialists, although I'm sure that they would very happily add that epithet. So it's like, you know, on the one hand, you see that Trump was quite successful. And it's why I asked you to of so many parts of the country. They have a lot of right wing radio and Sinclair television broadcasts and Fox News. But on the other hand, answering this question about whether or not Americans don't think in their own interest? I think they do very often. And I think that's the point that you make about jobs. So can you sort of...
2: I have great admiration for Tom Frank, but his famous book, What's the Matter with Kansas, that showed all these people voting against their immediate material interests. I responded to that with an article called What's the Matter with West Virginia? Once the most solidly democratic state of all, and West Virginians in some ways are right to say that the democratic party left them behind. If you go back for instance, to uh, Bush's very contested victory in 2000, the Democrats had nothing to say about things like the steel industry, a big employer in West Virginia, Bush promised to put tariffs on steel. And he did for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, People have to ask who's on my side and who's not. Right. The Democrats, unfortunately, are not the party of full employment, even the party of Lyndon Johnson, that made economic well-being of ordinary Americans its highest value. We still inherit the neoliberal party, as you um, put, shaped by the new Democratic majority and the Clintons. This is a restoration in a time when everybody understood there had to be a revolution of some kind in the Democratic Party.
0: I want to ask one final question, Mike, and that is about, you started to mention about the demonization and literally dismantling of the public sector, and that's where any jobs will have to come. And I know Robert Brenner last week talked about, you know, there has to be some form of statism because there will be no investment if we don't have that. But we don't have either, you know, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party putting forward any policies like that. So I just sort of want to ask you uh, how you see, I guess, the future in the short term and in the longer term, given that the obvious answer is not being pursued.
2: Well, I agree. Bob's analysis of the whole crisis over the last year has been brilliant. But I wouldn't necessarily call it statism. This is where the question of campaign finance reform and so on, that was knocked down by this hideous Citizens United decision a few years ago, comes into play. It can't be the same state or the same kind of government. The public sector has to go along new lines where unions and the workers in those departments have much more say over the apportionment of of government services and transfer payments and where the people who receive them have more pay. In other words, it has to also be a plan for a new kind of, of government and the democratization, because what the Trump administration has done is carry to the nth degree something that, of course, has occurred for more than 100 years, which is the capture of regulatory bodies and major government departments, precisely by the interests that they are supposed to regulate. Health and human services, oh. it's big pharma at the helm. Education, it's Betsy DeVos and the private education sector. We go on and on. So, to do this, there has to be a kind of clean break that's advocated by both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren some progressives still regard with hostility? I don't understand that. Her positions have been exceptionally good. And she was still left at Bernie on the question of taxing wealth. Mm -hmm. She was prepared to take that step because income taxes really don't get at the core inequality in American life, which is the inequality of wealth. And through that, the inequality of economic power.
0: Mike, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for all of that. I know we could go on for hours, and I wish we could, but I want to thank you for spending this time with us today on Jacobin Radio. Mike is a historian, activist, prolific author. Look for the article that's going to come out very soon in New Left Review, tentatively titled, The Civil War Served Cold. And also his latest books, not just Set the Night on Fire, which we've talked about here, but also The Monster Enters, COVID 19, Avian Flu, and The Plagues of Capitalism. Mike, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.